Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax with weird and wonderful science fogging your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. Welcome to this special International Myalgic Encephalomyelitis Chronic Fatigue Syndrome Awareness Day edition. ME-CFS is an illness with post-exertion malaise, which means people get deeply exhausted after either physical or mental effort, way out of proportion to what a healthy person would experience. They may need days of rest to recover. People with ME-CFS may also suffer from symptoms similar to some of the long COVID symptoms, such as memory and concentration issues called brain fog, sore throats, headaches, stomach issues, chronic pain, and many other symptoms. It's a neglected disease with very little medical research funding, no social supports, and it's associated with social stigma and disbelief. In Australia, there are 250,000 people diagnosed with ME-CFS and they matter. Full disclosure, I was diagnosed with myalgic encephalomyelitis 30 years ago. The plan was for this episode to be an interview with Anne Wilson, the CEO of Emerge MECFS Advocacy Organisation, about their campaign for better treatment and support for people living with MECFS. Unfortunately, Zoom failed me completely. First, I couldn't see her in the waiting room to admit her to the meeting, while she was told I was on another meeting. Then, my laptop froze up. We moved to a new link on my iPad, which offered cloud recording, and we spoke for half an hour. But the recording never showed up on Zoom's cloud server, and they haven't yet answered my support ticket. Zoom appear to have lost the interview. With little time left, I present to you some stories about myalgic encephalomyelitis, chronic fatigue syndrome, from 1999 and onwards, showing that over 23 years, nothing has changed. The hope is now with the unfortunate fact that many people are suffering long COVID with very similar symptoms, some medical research funding and social support might finally become available for people suffering these symptoms. The federal government has found to provide guidelines for doctors consistent with the latest medical research, which shows that ME-CFS is a physical illness. Instead, they're still insisting that people suffer treatments known to harm them, on the discredited theory that the illness was just a fear of exercise coupled with deconditioning muscles from lack of exercise. So the recommended treatment from last century was Cognitive Behavioural Therapy, CBT, and Graduated Exercise Therapy, GET. Instead, people living with myalgic encephalomyelitis should be getting individual treatment for their symptoms, shown how to pace themselves to avoid post-exertion malaise and exhaustion, and told how the illness works and how to minimise its effects on their lives. By keeping medical guidelines that are decades out of date with harmful treatments, not only are the federal government robbing people of getting proper treatment from properly educated doctors, but people are also having to fight to get access to the disability support pension when they can no longer work, and fight to get access to the National Disability Insurance Scheme, NDIS, for support to live their life. 
In March 1999, in my first year with Diffusion, I attended an international MECFS conference and made this report recovered from cassette tape. The Alison Hunter Memorial Foundation for Research into CFS organised an international medical conference titled The Challenge of Chronic Illness, a role for complex infections and channelopathy. The first speaker, the New South Wales Shadow Minister for Health, Mrs Gillian Skinner, MP, had this to say. The serious impact of the disease for people uh, with CFS is compounded by ignorance and dismissive attitudes by people for whom those patients are, are turning for help. Professor Garth Nicholson from the US Institute for Molecular Medicine pointed out similarities between Gulf War illness, CFS and fibromyalgia syndrome. Mycoplasmas are a strange form of bacteria which has only been possible to culture in laboratories in recent years. Professor Nicholson has found infections in 60% of CFS patients and in 45% of Gulf War illness patients. Mycoplasma infection can be treated by six rounds of six-week courses of antibiotics. Professor Nicholson became involved in CFS research when his stepdaughter came home from the Gulf War with Gulf War illness. Simon Molesworth QC has a son who suffers from CFS. He says that the cognitive behavioural therapy commonly offered in Australia as psychotherapy for CFS is legally malpractice because it ignores the physical side of the illness. And the disbelief of the physician is harmful as the blame for psychosomatic illness is laid against the patient or their family. A similar thing happened with ulcers, which are now treated with antibiotics. He's proposing a central database registry of everyone with CFS, along with their case histories, as the only way serious work on finding a treatment or cure can progress efficiently. Australian psychologist Dr Michael King told us how many CFS patients had been sent to him by GPs to be sorted out, which of course for a physical illness he was unable to do. He emphasised that a psychologist's office is not the place for someone with CFS. The presence of cognitive dysfunction clearly differentiates CFS from clinical depression. Dr Abhijit Chaudhuri from Glasgow believes that the fluctuating symptoms of CFS are similar to channelopathy diseases. Channelopathy is when there is a problem with the exchange of ions across cells. This results in easily excited cells in the nerves, brain, heart and muscles. He also referred to an American Journal of Medicine article which briefly mentions that in many cases of CFS and seasonally affected disorder there's a connection between chocolate cravings and mood swings that indicate a lack of serotonin in the brain. People with a lack of serotonin only craved brown chocolate. Research into the medically important elements of chocolate is continuing. And finally, advocate Ted Shaw spoke at length about the misdiagnosis of CFS as psychological disorders and the grievous harm that can be caused as a result. A child in Queensland was diagnosed with somatoform disorder and put on a graded exercise program and cognitive behavioural therapy. The doctors were following the draft clinical guidelines for CFS. When her mother insisted the child was physically ill, the child was taken from her family. The Pfizer drug company has produced the Sphere Hickey checklist for GPs to diagnose mental illness by the numbers and, of course, prescribe their drugs. Any positive answer to questions about common symptoms such as headaches, sore throats, diarrhoea, back pain, fever, dizziness and nausea will be taken to indicate a psychological disorder. Ted suggests that people contact their state and federal MPs to combat these issues. Sadly, not a single suggestion for government action from that day was taken despite the nice words from ministers. You're listening to Ian Wolfe on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia 
on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. Eight years later, in 2007, Dr. Stephen Graves, director of the Hunter Area Pathology Service in the Australian Rickettsial Reference Laboratory, attended another MECFS international conference in Cambridge and spoke to me by phone. Essentially, chronic fatigue syndrome is a disease that can't really be diagnosed with any tests, and it's a clinical diagnosis where people have a period of fatigue that exceeds six months. So six months is taken as the cutoff point. And so usually something happens to them, they get unwell, and they have this fatigue that goes on beyond six months. Now, in some cases, it can go on for nine, 12 months, In other patients, it can go on for years, and occasionally it can actually go on for decades. So it's a very diverse disease with a lot of other features associated with it. Some patients have other symptoms, but the the thing that's common to all of them is this fatigue ability. People don't have any energy. They can't do their normal work. They can't do their normal social activities. And if you test their muscle activities, you actually take them into a laboratory and get them to do an exercise involving muscular activity, they cannot do it as well as normal people of that age and sex. So there are biological or biomedical markers for this disease, but the main one is this chronic fatigue that just goes on and just doesn't seem to get better for these poor people. And it's not just a physical fatigue, is it? It's also an intellectual and emotional That's right. There are other, the other sort of things that go with it are what's called a brain fog, where people feel they can't function properly. Now, the reason for that is probably that their blood pressure is not working properly and they're not getting adequate brain circulation of blood. So that's probably the main thing there. But you're right, it can, be, it can be an emotional thing as well. It can be a tiredness where people don't sleep well. There can be pain associated with the chronic fatigue syndrome. Different pressure points on the body can cause pain. So there's a number of different subgroups. In fact, one of the people at the conference, uh, Professor Jonathan Kerr, has divided chronic fatigue syndrome into seven different groups based on molecular studies of which parts of their DNA are malfunctioning. And so he's actually got these seven groups based on different types of illnesses that they've got. So it's not one illness. It's not like measles or it's not like a a broken limb or something like that. It's a lot more complicated. It's heterogeneous, really. So there's a lot of different paths, I think, that can lead someone into the symptoms of chronic fatigue syndrome. It seems to be an illness that has more than one cause. Oh, yes, most definitely. It's like you say someone's got a fever or a high temperature, but we know very well that there are dozens and dozens of different causes why someone might have a high temperature. So it's the same with this disease. There are probably many, many different precipitating factors. Now, one of the most important precipitating factors that we believe is infection, and different types of microorganisms seem to be responsible for these infections. So infection is one. Another seems to be certain chemicals, chemical exposures that can cause people to also develop this type of uh, syndrome. So, yes, the fatigue is the common end pathway of a whole variety of what you might call environmental stimuli that are are affecting a person. And it's not anyone, it's a person with a, a particular genetic predisposition. So it's like a disease that you and I might be exposed to exactly the same virus, for example, 
mm-hmm. I'm predisposed and get the chronic fatigue as a, as a sequelae of the infection. You're not genetically predisposed. You get an acute infection, you get over it, and you're back to normal again. So that's being shown by the work of Kerr, looking at the genes of these people. And then there's an environmental stimulus, which in many cases appears to be an infection. And our work suggests that it could be a Q fever organism or rickettsial disease that could be the precipitant infection. What about rickettsia? What's that? Well, rickettsia are, are, are carried by ticks mainly. And in Australia, the uh, tick that, that can cause this is probably a uh, tick that's found on bush animals, but it also likes biting people as well. So we've had a few examples of people who've been bitten by these ticks and have actually developed an illness and gone on to get a fatigue-like process. Q fever, on the other hand, although it is transmitted by ticks, most people get it as an aerosolised infection when, when animals kick up dust and dirt and things like that and the microorganism is in the dust and people inhale it. But that, that's also an intracellular bacterium. And I believe there's something a little odd going on with the immune systems of people with chronic fatigue syndrome. Most definitely. Just about everybody who's looked at these people finds an abnormality in their immune system. You see, the immune system is designed to deal with infection. When someone is exposed to a microorganism, the immune system essentially is meant to destroy it. In the process of destroying it, the patient gets sick for a little while. That's an acute illness. So when you get exposed to influenza virus, you, you get the flu and you go, go to bed, you're sick, you've got a fever, you're very fatigued, your muscles ache and all the rest of it. And that's quite normal. Once your immune system has destroyed that microorganism by switching on and doing certain things, it's meant to go back to normal. Now, in patients with chronic fatigue syndrome, the feeling is that the immune system doesn't go back to normal properly and it continues to kick along at an elevated rate. It's what we call pro-inflammatory cytokines are being produced by an immune system. And nearly everyone that's looked at these chronic fatigue syndrome patients have found uh, raised pro-inflammatory cytokines. And these are probably what's, what are making the patient feel unwell. And I believe there's two systems in the immune system. Is it Th1 and Th2? Oh, that's getting very technical now. You've certainly done your homework there. The Th1 system is essentially the, the component of the system that destroys microorganisms that are infecting humans, and in the process of destroying them, you get a, an inflammatory response. The Th2 system tends to be a system that doesn't actually destroy the organism, the invading microorganism, but allows it to persist and establishes a chronic infection. So you get a host-parasite relationship that is, allows the parasite or the microorganism to persist and the host to persist also. It's a sort of balance between the immune system of the patient and the survival of the microorganism. So patients that have got a Th2 response to microorganism are more likely to get chronic fatigue syndrome than someone who's got a Th1 response. This, the T refers to the T lymphocytes the, and the helper T lymphocytes and how they deal with these invading microorganisms. So as a result of these better understandings of what seems to be causing it and what the processes are, are there any new treatments on the horizon? Well, there's lots of being treatments being talked about and at the conference quite a few were mentioned, but most of them haven't actually been tried with very many patients. And some of them are antiviral compounds which uh, work to destroy the viruses and some of them are substances that modulate or modify the immune response. 
But at this point in time, unfortunately, there's no recognised, approved treatment protocol that works with the, with the bulk of patients. What practitioners tend to do, they try something and see if it works with the patient, and if it does, all well and good. If it doesn't, they try something else. So we're, we're almost at the pre-antibiotic stage of treating infectious diseases with regard to chronic fatigue syndrome. We don't have the magic bullets yet that will actually zero in and treat exactly what's wrong with the patient. So the answer to your question is really no good treatment just yet. So if you're someone who has been diagnosed with chronic fatigue syndrome, basically do you just have to trust that your doctor will, through trial and error, find something that might work for you or... That's pretty much what it comes down to at the moment. Until this basic biological research is finished and we really know what the pathogenesis is of chronic fatigue syndrome, the treatment protocol at the moment is uh, find yourself a practitioner who at least understands chronic fatigue and has, has treated patients with chronic fatigue and let them try certain protocols on you and see how they work. Because in some patients they do work and they get quite good relief and in other patients they don't, so they have to try something else. So it's very much hit and miss at the moment. As I say, we're in a very early stage of understanding of this disease or this group of diseases, and as a consequence, treatment is not very well developed yet. Oh, so it's not quite so hopeful at the moment. I know it's very difficult to find a doctor who does understand chronic fatigue syndrome if you're in that position. So I guess it's a matter of luck and knowing the right people. Well... The problem is a lot, of, a lot of people who have had chronic fatigue syndrome for a long time are pretty uh, depressed and miserable and feeling unhappy with life and it stands to reason why they should be feeling so. So unfortunately a lot of doctors will classify these people as having an emotional illness, having a, even a psychiatric illness, but uh, they haven't seen the patient before they got sick, you see. So I've had the benefit of seeing patients before they've got sick and they're perfectly normal, just like you and me. Energy, get up and go, go off to school, go off to work, you know, normal social life. Then something happens to them, usually infection, and then they get this chronic fatigue syndrome. And their doctor or the doctor they consult only sees them down the track, months down the track or even years down the track. And they're not the same person that they were before. So this is the problem. Doctors only actually see you at that point of time when you're consulting with them, where they're consulting with you. Uh, so there's a lot of, um, what shall I say, misunderstanding about chronic fatigue syndrome amongst the medical profession. And I'm a doctor, so I can, I can say that. My colleagues are not very um, sympathetic about patients with chronic fatigue syndrome, and it's a great shame. It, it is definitely a disease with a true biological basis. It's just that we don't understand what it is yet. Right. So it's, it's still the invisible illness, and the, the patients have to be good advocates at the moment to um, find the right doctor and get some good treatment. Once it's all sorted out and we've, we've got proper treatments, well, people will be able to go to any GP and, and there'll be a test for chronic fatigue syndrome, so there'll be a blood test which can be sent off. The result will come back. The doctor will say, well, Mrs Smith, you've got chronic fatigue syndrome and here's the recommended treatment for it. Take these tablets twice a day for three weeks or whatever and it'll be just like most of the other illnesses that we now deal with. But we're just not at that point in time yet. Thank you, Stephen Graves, very much. Very welcome. And now... Fifteen years later, nothing has changed. There's still very little funding for medical research, no cure, no treatment, and no social support. The one thing that has changed is the emergence of the Emerge MECFS Advocacy Organisation. Their CEO, Anne Wilson, and their medical director, Dr Richard Slofel, are getting the message out 
of what needs to change. And thanks to the unfortunate fact that long COVID is hitting more people with very similar symptoms to MECFS and the election campaign happening right now, they're starting to cut through in the mainstream media. The message from Emerge is that the 250,000 people in Australia with MECFS matter. General Practitioner GP Education is the cornerstone of Emerge's five-year plan, which will see them rolling out a newly completed health pathway across two key public health networks in Victoria, while their nurse educator Kate Herbert continues to deliver training to allied health staff across Australia. Importantly, they're also seeking funds for the updating of Australia's outdated 20-year-old clinical guidelines, which will ultimately complement GP education, diagnosis and management of MECFS. Here's Dr Richard Schlofel in 2022, who holds a medal of the Order of Australia. Myalgic encephalomyelitis chronic fatigue syndrome is a collection of symptoms that occurs to adults or children where they're experiencing unrelenting fatigue, cognitive impairment, but particularly post-exertional malaise, which is unrelieved by rest, sleep disturbance, gastrointestinal problems, immune problems, problems with their hormonal systems, leading to a range of symptoms that are not explained by another diagnosis. In adults, it's great these symptoms for greater than six months, and in children, it's for symptoms greater than three months, and that ends up with the diagnosis of ME-CFS. In Australia, we believe there's up to 250,000 Australians, or 1% of the population, are impacted with ME-CFS. They're often hidden, and many of them are severely ill, and often they have to be cared by a number of caregivers, their family, their partner, their parents, in some cases, even though they're adults, and that has an enormous impact, not just on the patient, but the carers who are providing the care. ME-CFS, affecting all these people. Some may be mild and they may just have fatigue and post-exertional malaise and be able to do maybe one thing in a day. Others are moderate and they basically housebound but can get out maybe once a week and then experience post-exertional malaise after the event. But there is a large group of these patients, 25% or 60,000 Australians, who are actually housebound, bedridden, totally reliant on carers and have a severe disability that's unrecognised because they're invisible as they live and exist within their bedrooms or within their homes without ever going out, without having interactions and anything they do, they experience severe post-exertional malaise, which is the hallmark of this condition. Long COVID would appear is a condition that occurs after you have the COVID infection and if you're still experiencing fatigue symptoms or malaise or chest pain, and other symptoms associated with the virus that you caught more than three months ago will be diagnosed as long COVID. So Deakin University recently has published some data suggesting that between 80,000 and 325,000 Australians this year will be impacted by long COVID. Now this syndrome looks just like MECFS so if we have an extra 325,000 Australians with this condition, this is a tsunami of very ill people, adding to the already ME-CFS burden that we have in our community. ME-CFS and long COVID require a diagnosis. Therefore, it requires educated GPs to make that diagnosis. So the hallmark of 
helping this disease and understanding it is education of all GPs and doctors in general throughout Australia. It's also providing coordinated care for the patient, but also support and care for the uh, carers as well, and introducing a process where allied health can be provided for patients and the carers to assist them in managing their health issues. I think the biggest issue we have at the moment is recognition by the NDIS, which is for disability, and these people are disabled, and also organising for disability support pension. If you're sick for a long period of time and you're not financed in that illness, that's catastrophe. And many of these patients struggle to get onto NDIS and get a disability support pension, probably due to the lack of knowledge and understanding by the community in general about the needs of these patients. I think there's the biggest issue also is that we haven't got adequate research in Australia to understand this large body of illness that uh, prevalence as we have now and funding for up-to-date Australian research is necessary. And I think the other thing that's really going to help is a new Australian guideline. If we have an established guideline that all GPs, all doctors have access to, they'll be able to use that guideline in assisting them in making the diagnosis when a patient presents with these symptoms, whether it's ME, CFS or long COVID, which in my view are very similar disorders requiring the sim similar degree of intent and support from their GPs and the medical profession at large. I think in the long term, we're facing a tsunami of these cases which are going to increase exponentially this year and if COVID infection persists into the future I suspect 10 to 30 percent of people who catch COVID unvaccinated and 5 to 15 percent of people who catch COVID vaccinated are going to end up with long COVID which is another form of MECFS. So that's an enormous disease burden on our community which needs to be tackled head on and that's the best way to do that with good education and proper research and a government and the population aware of the condition. You can find out more at emerge.org.au and hopefully this time we can finally make something change for the better. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Are you a scientist, artist, biohacker or maker who'd like to be interviewed about your work? Would your company like to sponsor Diffusion? Send your contributions, opinions, helpful suggestions and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. Please subscribe to the Diffusion Science Radio channel on youtube.com slash c slash diffusionradio and rate the show on iTunes. Tell your friends. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolf. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia to 28 stations on the community radio network, including Radio Blue Mountains 89.1 FM in New South Wales, 8 C in Alice Springs and Tennant Creek, 2 MVR in Nambucca Valley, 3 MVR in the Mallee Border Districts of Victoria and South Australia, City Park Radio 7 LTN in Launceston, Tasmania, and 2 XFM in Canberra. Diffusion is narrowcast on Indigo FM 88 in northeast Victoria. Diffusion is syndicated globally on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to the podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. And check the website for links, photos and videos about this week's show. 
If you enjoyed the show, you can explore more than a thousand previous episodes archived on diffusionradio.com, where the shows are labelled by keywords so you can focus in on the stories you want to hear. Make a donation through paypal.me slash ianwolf or join my patrons at patreon.com slash diffusionradio. I'm Ian Wolf. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know, and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the Earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. Everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits. Photography. Collecting. Why study science? Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life.